Welcome to New Hope's Sermon of the Week. We hope you're blessed by this week's message. I've got three issues I'd like to talk to you about, okay? And they actually might not even see connected. After I talk about these three, I'm hoping to prophesy over a few of you too today, okay? Um, so I'm waiting during worship to say, okay, God, what is it that we need to address in here? And these three issues come up to me because uh, they're things I think about. One of my favorite things to do, and it's a constant passion, it's a constant going on in my head all the time, is to find out the core belief and then follow the implications down the road. Because if you shift one core belief, in a matter of time, dominoes start falling and you begin to think a certain way about all these other issues. A good example would be if your core issue is does God exist or if he doesn't exist. Well, if you have shifted from one to the other, then you're going to have a whole lot of dominoes that have to realign according to that new core belief. For example, if you now have shifted to atheism, you have to think differently about how to govern your family, how education should be, how government should be, what's right and what's wrong. You know, everything gets shifted because of all the implications of a core belief. And one of those issues is uh, something that I've been passionate about because of so many of our university church-going kids, they lose their faith in university, so I spent a lot of time trying to sort that out and saying, you know, how come they're losing their faith? How come we're not preparing them enough to resist the onslaught, the bombardment of a whole atheistic worldview? Now, it's interesting because an atheistic worldview not only has a core belief of there is no God, but there is a whole list of thousands of things that fall into alignment gradually as a person moves into that way of thinking. Many people don't know it, but they've picked up many of the atheistic implications just because they've listened to people who have that worldview, and they don't even know it. They've been selecting certain ways of thinking about an issue that agree with that whole atheistic worldview. In fact, I, I would say all of us, to some degree, pick up certain ways from a different worldview, and we entertain them and think, try to incorporate it into our being, you know, and sometimes they get kicked out and you realize they're wrong, but the Christian worldview, belief in a God who is actively involved in this world, who gave his son to die for us, that Christian world also has implications on everything you do. It takes time to align all your thoughts into agreement with that worldview. And every day, you'll probably continue, you know, adjusting things, rethinking things. Even in, you know, how does God answer prayer? We're constantly in a uh, trying to understand God. How do I relate to you? And it should be because it's a relationship. Things do shift. Just uh, one of the areas that is common in an atheistic worldview that stands out. Now, I said one of thousands that we've had to deal with is the concept that atheists about 120 years ago came up with the thinking that everybody's nature is determined by nature or nurture. You've all heard the arguments, nature, nurture. Okay, well, that was actually designed by atheists. It was coined by them because it fits into the atheist worldview. And when everyone else who's not an atheist begins to think in those two categories, nature and nurture, they don't even realize they have embraced the atheistic view of humanity, not even realizing that we talk in their terms. Um, the whole concept of nature versus nurture, it is put in the frame of reference that there are only two influences on creating who you are. And when they say nature, they're referring to your DNA that which you inherited from your parents, when they say uh, nurture, they're saying how you are raised, your environment, all those forces. But we don't even realize it. If we talk in their terms, we have excluded the spiritual realm from the influence on human nature. Uh, most Christians don't even realize it. Then they'll accept. They'll hear certain discussion. They just enter into the discussion, not realizing that whoever frames the argument wins the argument. 
Whoever chooses the categories in which you'll be talking is predetermining what the conclusions will be. Like with this nature versus nurture thing, it's easy to get pulled into that argument. Already your mind has narrowed down to just the natural realm that it is naturally DNA or it is naturally the way your family raised you in your environment. When in reality, there are many other forces. I want to name just a few of those forces. For example, when you get born again. When you get born again, there's a starting point where God's breath is released into you. There's an injection of life from God. Your sins are forgiven, which the awareness of your sins forgiven does change who you are, how you act, because now you have a new freedom. You're no longer governed by the guilt and shame. You should be growing in this to live a life not governed by nature and nurture, but more and more, no, God put his life in me, and now I'm a child of God. There's a breath in you, and that breath also starts changing your heart. God is at work in you, causing you to will and to work for his pleasure, and so your heart is also being formed to do God's will. That's neither nature nor nurture, but God is at work forming you. Now, that's just one area. You know, there's many other areas. For example, a call of God on your life. That's neither nature nor nurture but God's calling. Uh, it says many are called, few are chosen. To, Christians often apply that to people who are called to salvation, but I believe it's much more than that. It's not about salvation in the context. It was actually many are called in the sense that God calls people to do his will in a certain area. Many people are called, for example, you know, to mentor others. To, some are called to do business. Some are called to be worship leaders. Some are called. God can call people to do his will in the earth. And many, many, many people experience that. And even non-Christians at times have the call of God. There's several examples in the Old Testament. People who are not Christian, God called them. And when God calls your inner being wants to respond, wants to answer that, and when it does, it literally starts conforming to the call of God. You start forming desires to do that. You, something in you responds. Now, many people do not respond enough, so he says, many are called, few are chosen. Well, the concept chosen in the New Testament, we have to think with the Hebraic mind. For example, Jesus was called the chosen one. In the Hebraic mind, that was the anointed one. So it's not just, you know, many are called, but few are anointed. You answer the call of God, you start desiring, something's leaping in you, and actually turning your life to start doing what God's asking to do, but you can resist it. On the other hand, if you yield yourself to it and go for it, God will give you the anointing, the empowering to accomplish that which he's calling you to do. There is an anointing that teaches you. First John chapter 2, it explains what the anointing does. The anointing is the presence of God coming upon you. And the word literally means having oil spread upon because that was representative in the Old Testament times. They would put oil on someone representing that the Spirit of God is on that person. But when the Spirit of God comes, it changes their thoughts, their desires, it changes the very motivation deep within them. The anointing teaches them. It literally causes your brain to have different thoughts than you had before. It's not nature or nurture. Something is aligning your thoughts to do what God wants you to do in the earth. Many people don't even know they're being guided by God, but that is the way God works in this world. That anointing is the empowering then to do that. Not only does it teach you, but the anointing comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus now has all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, if you receive the spirit of Jesus, that spirit is in you, and in his presence, every knee bows, every tongue confesses. Yes. Therefore, if Jesus is in you, whatever degree he's in you, it will have a tangible effect on the world and the people around you. Like if I'm anointed to be a teacher, people will want to listen. Something will get in them just to tune in. They're so tangible. If there's a worship leader and the worship leader's anointed, somehow in the room, people's hearts just turn and start following. You can have an anointed leader, and when that anointed leader speaks, everybody listens. Someone else could say the same words, and no one would respond. The anointing is the empowering presence of Jesus Christ, 
and there's a tangible effect on humanity, some people are anointing to make money. Money just comes their way. It just, it's a flow that literally happens. They see the opportunities, they can go for it, and God has called them in the earth to be a blessing to many people financially. So we see the anointing, yes, it teaches you, it empowers you, it guides you, but it also gives you something that allows things to bow, to yield to that which you move ahead to accomplish. It brings things into alignment to make it happen. So the anointing, the calling, and just being born again, all three of those are beyond nature and nurture. Yes. And yet if somebody pulls you into a discussion, you know, who are we? And they immediately say, are we nature and nurture? They've narrowed you down. You've already submitted to atheistic categories that were specifically designed to make people think according to the atheist worldview. People don't know they've been pulled into an aspect of that. So I love to think through those issues. There's other areas, too, that nature and nurture does not determine. Your heart is, according to Scripture, the very control center of your being. Where you point your heart does determine much of what you accomplish in this world. If you turn your heart and connect with people of a certain frame of mind, you will benefit by their strengths. There will be a connection between their heart and yours. And if you connect with certain type of people, you get the characteristics. Like if you connect with very successful people, people who in the earth are doing great things, you will find yourself more energized, more able to do great things in the earth. If you connect with people who are very loving, you will become more loving. If you connect with people who are filled with compassion for others, you'll become more compassionate. The same time in your heart, you can have judgments against people. If there's a certain group of people, you have a judgment in your heart, well, that influences everything about you, including your mind. If you have a judgment against a certain people, your mind will collect information to reinforce what you believe in your heart. It will literally select out of the world the information that reinforces things, and so your heart determines much of what your brain actually filters. So when I talk about, okay, well, who are we in the earth? I want to talk beyond nature and nurture. In fact, I've come to believe that nature and nurture does not determine what you accomplish in life. It does profoundly influence how you accomplish it. How you, with your personality, it will come out. With what you... Uh, you know, you have to use your gifts, your natural gifts. They all come into play. But they do not accomplish how much you accomplish. How much you accomplish, what you will do is more determined by where your heart is, that which your heart has received, whether it is the call of God, the, the will of God, whether you're in submission to Him, but the people you're joined with, the people that you either push out of your life people that you harden yourself to, all those things are really what determine who you are Amen. and determine what you accomplish in this world. So because as Christians we ought to understand that, that's some of the aspects that we're very sensitive to. The heart. Where is your heart? You want to accomplish great things, then you have to watch over your heart. You want to constantly be cleaning it out. You want to be forgiving people. You want to be loving people. Having your heart directed where it needs to be. Okay. One more thing about that before we go on to the next subject. Um, I find that um, people who are stuck on nature and nurture, the only answer to problems is behavior modification. If you think the only influences that determine who you are is nature and nurture, the only answer you have to solve a problem is to somehow punish yourself for the bad things you've done and reward yourself. You see, there is no spiritual category for you. Therefore, what your heart does has no influence on you if that's your worldview. But on the other hand, if you have embraced the Christian worldview, no, really to change your nature, it's not so much punishing yourself or rewarding yourself, it's much more who's your heart joined with. You know, like, there's one pastor in Southern California um, I go to, and whenever I'm with him, he used to be a bodybuilder, okay? Well, 
For the next two weeks, I can pump weights, okay? It's just by being with him for two weeks, there's something that I get, and I go, yeah, ooh, I want to pump some weights now. Uh, and it's not my energy. It's not nature and nurture. It's I bonded him. I connected with him when I was there, and I literally draw some strength that turns me into another person. You can do the same thing in different areas of your life. And if you will connect with people who are strong in the areas you're weak, you can literally bring in their nature, which will cause your nature to be very much like their nature. That is the Christian understanding. And therefore, we solve problems not just by uh, behavior modification, but by adjusting the heart. And ultimately, the heart is where your real being is determining what you're going to do. Okay, next subject I like to move. It might not sound these are connected. That's because they're not connected, okay? <laughs> I'm just feeling, hey, I want to talk about these three. I want to talk about issues like here on the forefront of Christian thought. Um, the whole issue of the sexual revolution that happened in the 60s, but today it has become more specific on homosexuality and gender uh, relationships, it is shaking to Christianity to try to address this issue. First of all, it's an issue that can divide. So it's hard to publicly even address it because people can get offended. You can divide things. But still, the church is supposed to be the pillar in support of truth. In the earth, the church is still a standard that is supposed to be there in a world that rocks to and fro, in a world that's tossed by every wind and wave, there is still something that we believe in. Yes. Now, if, if you are of an atheistic worldview, then the church has nothing to say about this issue. Because if, there's, if atheism is true, then you and I are not really following God. We're not getting our information from God. We're making it up if there is no God. So their view of us, if their atheistic worldview is, well, the church is irrelevant. Nobody believes the church anymore. And yet... If you are still a strong believer, and indeed most of America still is strong believers in God, most of America still does believe that there is a right and wrong uh, that is established in God. If you are part of that, you know, force in the earth, then somehow you ought to be reflecting the will of God in this earth. But there's another issue on how do we do that. It's one thing as a Pharisee to just say, this is what's right, bow to it. So I use the word Pharisee because back in Jesus' day, there were religious leaders, some called Sadducees, some Pharisees, and some scribes. The Pharisees were the group that enforced the Bible rules, the Old Testament, and demanded everybody live up to it. Okay? You and I can tend to be Pharisees when we think we're right, and we demand everybody to live up to it. And Jesus didn't like that idea. In fact, uh, one scripture, uh, if you like turn into it right now, back in Isaiah, that really is, gives you God's concept, his, what he thinks about people like that. It's rather scary. It's rather shocking what God says about those who are holy are a stench in my nose. You go, here, here it goes. I'm reading Isaiah 65, verse 5. Who say, keep, your, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. The, if you were to be someone who in your religious lifestyle, indeed you have determined right from wrong, but then you now think, I'm holier than people around me. Stay away from me. I'm not going to get touching you. That's a stench in God's eyes. That burns God's It's like smoke burning his eyes. He can't stand it. And... We as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we're hearing the warnings of Jesus Christ saying, I don't want to be that. So I have to, yes, there's truth. We're the pillar in support of the truth. And yet, I don't want to make people you know, feel like they're condemned around me. I don't want to make them think like I'm holier than now. Or even to entertain thoughts like that. I just rather, God, what is my responsibility in this? The church is being challenged you know, for at least 20 years right now on this issue. And sometimes I think God is, allows things to happen to train us. 
that there's bigger issues in his heart is to teach us how to respond. And we're sometimes so focused on solving the problem, we don't realize we are the problem and we are the object that's being molded in this. You know, you really never advance in life until you look inside. God, what can I learn out of this? How can I improve? Uh, I don't know if I mentioned before here, but some of you know that our oldest son's living a gay lifestyle. Uh, 39, right? And it's been over 10 years, been the gay lifestyle. You know, he used to preach with me, travel all over the world with me. Um, and you've heard other leaders who have family members. Most families in America have someone in the extended group that is in a lifestyle sexually that it's troublesome, okay? So I've had to face-to-face with it, and almost everyone in this room has had some kind of encounter on how do we deal with this. Okay, I bubble it all back to the most core issue. I have to love. This I know God wants me to love. He doesn't want me to be a Pharisee. Now, you have to get more careful about love when it's someone you know. You have to start defining it. And defining love, actually seeing how it implies, it gets pretty picky sometimes. Okay? Because now you have, you know, maybe a couple ask you to attend their marriage, you know, and it's two men or two women, or they ask to stay at your house. Now there's... The rubber hits the road, and you as a Christian are trying to make decisions, and I can't answer it here. One of the things that I had to settle, but it took me at least, it took me about two years to become at peace with it, is, Harold, it's not your job to change people. It's your job to love people. I wish the whole church in the midst of this struggle could come down to that, number one. Number one, I'm going to love. Number one, I have defining love then where I am not going to entertain condemnation. When Jesus literally looks like at the adulterous woman, it seems to me that he's with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, that there was still no condemnation coming out of him, but there was still love. That Jesus has set aside that judgmental mode And then how am I to do things? I don't want them to sense condemnation in me. Therefore, I'm going to deal with my own heart and say, God, I I don't want that flowing out of me. Because I don't even believe that condemnation changes people's nature. It puts me back to the first topic of behavior modification. Punish someone and they'll change. There's a very, very little evidence that that works okay most of us have tried it in our own lives we beat ourselves up you can get some change but without a different answer there's not much hope of changing humanity without another answer where god is pouring out his spirit and we can access god's nature there really isn't much hope without god so why would I then choose to use condemnation to try to change their nature? Why don't I try this other avenue and say I'm going to love? I'm going to love and not condemn. One of the issues that we had to sort out was that one verse in 1 Corinthians 5 where it says, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Most of you have heard that, and it's, it's one of the most troublesome verses when you're trying to sort this out. Verse 9 of chapter 6, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Then it lists people committing different sins, fornicators, adulterers, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I, I, when, when all this with our own family got revealed, I study a lot. I immediately, I read probably 25 books written on the issues. Um, Right at that time, too, I was in Ohio teaching a pastor's conference, and the host had rented a different church building um, just for the pastor's conference, and it it got over on a Wednesday, and the pastor of the church that we rented the building from asked me, will you stay and preach tonight? And I did, 
But I found out Wednesday night it was a gay church when all of a sudden I get up to speak and go, whoa, God, here I go again. I got to sort this stuff out. Now you put me right in front. I'm getting pretty comfortable just loving, but it seems like God's been actually doing a work. And he wants to reach deeper than I want to reach. He said, Harold, do you really love or what's in you? Now notice I'm not backing down from what I believe truth is. Here in this scripture is one of the issues where a minister friend helped us. It says, okay, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not heaven. This is not salvation. There's a salvation issue and there's a kingdom issue. The kingdom is the reign of Jesus Christ. You can get into the kingdom today. When you bow to King Jesus, you are stepping into a kingdom of life and love. In this kingdom, there's righteousness, peace, and joy. There's a guidance system in this kingdom that's allowing you to yield to King Jesus and he's governing your life. That, that's a kingdom issue. Salvation is a different issue. Now, I needed to somehow sort this out. Even to, I'm rethinking all the implications of verses this is one of the main ones i got to get straight. There is an association between salvation and kingdom, association, but there's still a difference. When we say salvation, we're usually referring to you having your sins forgiven and then spend eternity in happiness with God. Where kingdom, as this verse says, they will not inherit the kingdom, I, I look at this and say, yeah, there's something about living that lifestyle where people will not experience the reign of Jesus Christ and fulfill a kingdom destiny. There is something where this scripture says, yeah, you choose that lifestyle, you're making a choice not to live a life bowing and yielding, and so there will be a frustration, a difficulty, but that's still different than salvation. And so I meet a lot of gay people that seem to be talking about Jesus a lot. Yeah, it's really, I, I wish they weren't so nice, okay? <laughs> if they weren't so nice, I could probably figure things out and put them in categories better. But there's some people who think very differently than me, and yet they're really good people. It, it messes me up. I wish it was just two categories, like in years ago it was, Christians and non-Christians. It's just not that simple. I'm coming back down to it's the heart. And God looks at the heart, and no human being can see another person's heart. So it comes back to what's my place? I gotta just love. And I wish the church could just settle the issue because I think God's been using in our nation this issue to change us. And we try to fight things outwardly, but the first issue is right here. So I put one more element in this, and in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, I put one more element in this whole discussion about what are, how am I supposed to act in this present time in history when this is the big issue. Philippians 1, verse 6. Most of us know this verse. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I think almost all of us have heard this. Paul, the writer, saying, I'm confident. I have a confidence in me. I know God is at work in you. I know that God who began a work will perfect it. I know you will continue down this road. God's at work in you, helping you grow. And the end goal is to be like Christ. I'm confident that that process is still going on. Okay, But the next verse tells us why. The very next words, chapter 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Paul makes a connection between the people being in his heart and knowing that God's at work in them. There is a connection between your heart and releasing God to be at work in other people's hearts. Now, it doesn't you know, it's not a general thing for everybody in the world, but if God has given you some level of authority in anyone's life, if you've been a parent, like Paul here mentored these Christians in Philippi, okay, there was some kind of 
a relationship that had been established. And once a relationship is established, if you hold those people in your heart, you are in some way releasing Jesus Christ to continue the work that he began. I also point out the opposite in Scripture. Like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 about an immoral man in the church, he says, I judge him. Even though I'm absent in body, I'm going to judge in spirit and judge with, I'm going to push him out of my heart so that Satan would come and judge him. Now, that's a scary incident. We're not encouraging anybody to do it. Just trying to see the dynamic when Paul already had a relationship. He was a father to the church in Corinth, and there was some dynamic that could literally happen with his heart that did change things in the spirit realm. Now, we know in 2 Corinthians, he asked the church to forgive that man, welcome him back in, restore him lest he be destroyed. But that connection, it works parents and children, grandparents and children. It works in youth pastor to youth, senior pastor to congregation. It works with the boss and the employees. There's just something in the heart of a leader that holds people in their heart, and somehow it releases grace upon them. In the opposite, we see Jesus and Peter. Jesus said to Peter, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith fail you not. Satan had to ask Jesus' permission to sift Peter. I think sometimes that happens with parents and maybe a child that's not walking with God. And that child grows up, and the parent, you know, raised the child, doing great. Child was doing wonderful. And it starts off, the parent says, no, my child's going to make it. My child's going to make it. But thoughts start getting put into the parent's mind. Your child's not going to make it. Your child's not going to make it. Look what they're doing now. Look what they're doing now. Now, the enemy can put thoughts in our mind. He has no access to our heart. He can put thoughts in our That's what a temptation is putting a thought in a mind. But there's no power in the mind. It's when the heart agrees with the mind, it drops into the heart from the heart. The heart is that which influences the spirit realm. And so if a parent were to agree with my child's not going to make it, sometimes they've lost out of their heart the faith for their child, and they've given permission now for some evil to start attacking their child. And because of that principle... We want to always hold our loved ones in our heart, no matter what. A parent who sees their child not doing what they want should never say, my child's not going to make it. They're going to believe no matter what. No, it doesn't matter what's happening. I'm confident. You know why? Because I can feel them right here. I've got them in my heart. I've got, you know, pastor's got congregation in the heart. The boss has the whole business in the heart. There's somehow a power in here that if you and I will hold them in our hearts, something happens where there is a grace, there's a confidence. I know God's at work in them. I know God's keeping things online. And because I'm confident, I don't have to worry. But I, I, I might someday wake up and feel like they're slipping out of my heart or I'm having these thoughts. And I say, no, I refuse to let them go. I refuse to let them go. I'm holding my heart, and nothing's going to change that. Glory to God that we are in a war at some times that we don't even know it, so we hold them deep within. Okay, one more issue I want to deal with now. And this issue has to do with the love of God, but I want to talk about the love in a, in a way that maybe you've never heard before, okay? I'm sure you haven't seen it quite this way. In church history, there are certain times when our thoughts were developed as Western Christians. One of the most influential times was when a man named Augustine was uh, leading the church. He was the leading theologian in the church. About the year 400, Augustine was so influential, partly because of the time in history, because at that time in history, the Roman Empire was just embracing Christianity. It had been illegal to be a Christian before 313. Okay? But then everything changed. Christianity was made legal in 313, but by 376, Christianity was the only religion that was allowed in the Roman Empire. Millions of people in the Roman Empire started going to church. 
Now, we today do not know if they're truly Christians. They did not understand the born-again experience the way they did, but they were hearing about Jesus Christ. That's a huge change in our history. Now, there was only one leader who had more influence than anyone else, Augustine, at that time in history. Now, it's hard for us today to relate to how one leader can have so much influence. So let me give you an example. When Linda and I first started working in the Philippines, this was like 35 years ago, we went in Mindanao, the southern part of the Philippines, and we met a, a bishop there who was overseeing lots of churches. That bishop only owned two books. He owned the Bible and a book called Pigs in the Parlor. Okay. Now, for those of you who don't know that book, it's about demons are everywhere, okay? Now, because he only had two books, what do you think his ministry was like? It was like pigs in the parlor, okay? If you only have two sources of information, those two sources are profoundly impacting you. Well, you see, you and I today, we have many sources of information. You've got many teachers, you've got books, you've spent years you know, feeling Christianity, taking pieces here, building a worldview. But back then, it was, you know, Augustine was the man of the hour. And it was a time when Roman Empire was exploding. Before Augustine became a Christian, he had trained under a non-Christian leader named Plotinus. Plotinus envisioned God radiating out his attributes like the sun radiating out his will like the sun radiates light. So if you can think of the sun now, radiating light and the rays, shooting from God, shooting from God. That was Plotinus, who was not a Christian, but he said to look at God is like looking at the sun. Everything of God radiates out of him. Now Augustine trained for nine years under Plotinus's teaching. Then he becomes a Christian. But we can see how he still maintained a concept of God like the sun radiating out his attributes. As a matter of fact, that image of God is still in the subconscious of many Christians' lives. All of us, to some degree, are influenced by it. All of us have a tendency, isn't he radiating out? Isn't he like the sun? And yet, in Exodus 20, God warns in the commandments... Form no image of me of anything here on earth or in the heavens. That the image of the radiating sun we're not supposed to have of God. That it will confuse us about the nature of God. So I want to show why that's disturbing, this radiating out image. Just like the sun radiates heat, it radiates light. So also God radiates. And this is the view Augustine had. Now, Augustine had certain ways of thinking because of it. One of it is, he he wrote a book, The City of God, and in it, he talked about how God created light, but not darkness. Okay. Now, when I read in scriptures, like in Isaiah, most of you probably read this, I don't know if you thought about it, though, but it talks about Isaiah, what he said about God, it's about 45 or 44, let me... Turn right here. I should know the address of this one. God says, um, sorry, 40. Somebody know which 40 it is? Here it is, 45. That's right. Thank you. Here, uh, end of verse 6. I am the Lord, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing calamity and well-being, creating calamity, I am the Lord who does these things. Okay, now God said, I created light and darkness. Augustine said, God created light, but not darkness. Okay, who do you suppose was right? You know, just just wondering, God speaking through Isaiah or Augustine? Now, Augustine had to conclude that God did not create darkness because his concept of God is radiating out heat and light like the sun, radiating out all his will. Therefore, if you're radiating, think of one little ray coming out of God now as if it was a pipe originating in God's nature, but the pipe is carrying out his nature, radiating. So at the other end of the pipe, it's going to come out the same stuff that God is is going to come out the end. 
That's the image that you have with Augustine's image of God radiating. Whatever goes into the origination of the pipe is going to come out the other end of the pipe because you're radiating. Therefore, if God is light, the only thing that could come out the other end is light. And Augustine was trying to think philosophically, trying to understand God with philosophy. But if you and I are saying, I'm not going to trust my philosophy, I'm going to read Isaiah, I've got to figure out how come darkness comes out the other end. Well, because the view of Plotinus of radiating life is not who God is. There are no rays radiant out of God. You see, God fills the heavens and the earth. There's no place for a ray to go if he's already filling the heavens and the earth. The Bible says he dwells in light, yes, but there is nothing about light radiating out. That got introduced through this Plotinus. Why Why is this so important? Because if God radiates light, the top of the pipe you put in light, the bottom comes out, that's how you will philosophically think God acts. But on the other hand, God's not a radiator, he's a creator. What goes into the pipe doesn't come out the other end. No, God creates whatever he wants over there. He creates whatever he wants over there. That's why God can be spirit, but create a natural world. God does not have to create something out of his nature. In fact, that way of thinking was condemned in church history that anything of God's nature was used to bring into existence the natural world, and yet Augustine was thinking that way, and I find a lot of that thought in the American church, and that's why I'm talking about it right now. There's some implications. I want you to make a distinction then between a radiating God, what goes into the pipe, comes out of the pipe, versus God's a creator. He can create whatever he wants to create. Uh, I hear a statement sometimes. Well, God can't make you sick because he has no sickness. That's Plotinus. That's not Bible. Oh, sickness goes in the start of the pipe, then it'll come out the end. God has no sickness, so he can't put it in. No, you need to think deeper about this issue. You are now falling for the air by saying that that really has got a huge discrepancy and is causing bad theology in the American church. Here's some examples. Augustine, when he explained how God created the Garden of Eden, he creates the Garden of Eden, and he says, paradise. The Garden of Eden was paradise, and in fact, the whole earth was paradise. That's his word that was introduced. That became the standard of the picture of the Garden of Eden in church history, it started coming up in paintings, and we see Adam and Eve, you know, casually laying in the bushes, plucking an apple, you know, a flower Adam stroking her face with, and it was just perfect and wonderful, and there was no death or any pain in the garden. It was just no what comes out of God, because God's radiates. The image of God he has in his mind is no only what is in God can come out of God. Therefore, the Garden of Eden had to be like this. Philosophically, that's what you would decide if you have Plotinus's concept of God, radiating. And Augustine did that. He described the Garden of Eden. No dying, no nothing. Okay, now, I want you to not think from philosophy, but I want you to think in Genesis. What was paradise like? What was the Garden of Eden like? Okay, well, first, before the fall... God told them we have to work six days a week. Plants didn't grow in straight rows by themselves. They weren't laying in the flowers, just brushing their flowers against each other. No. God created a world that needed humans to work six days a week to tend it. Now, already I've got my conflict in the image that's in the Bible versus the image in Augustine's mind. But Augustine's mind has had a profound influence on Christians in America, even today. They still have not gotten rid of Augustine's thoughts. They've not read their Bible. They've not gone back and developed the concept of the Bible instead of from Augustine. They're still thinking differently. So now I think about the Garden of Eden. Okay, how did God design it? Was there any death in the Garden before the fall? Now, I, I was taught there can't be. Now, 
Romans 5.12 says, through Adam, sin came in the world and death came to humanity. So if we take that literally, which I do, then humans were not going to die, but it doesn't say anything about the plants and animals. Okay? No, it says because of the fall, yes, death came to humans. But now let's talk about, was there any death in plants and animals? Well, think about the plants. You know, they were already told you're going to eat the plants. You can't eat a plant without killing it. Every single cell has to be broken up in the human digestive system to be absorbed in the body. Every cell, every plant in nature is covered with thousands of bacteria. You can't eat that with the vast majority of those bacteria dying. So there's one level of death right there. And I think, well, how did you create the world then, God? So I try to imagine the Garden of Eden. No, my first degree was wildlife biology. Okay, that's what I was trained in, so I think in these terms. You know, if you allow rabbits to reproduce without any dying, within eight years, every square inch of the earth will have a rabbit on it. Within eight years. Beetles. It would only take about two years to populate the whole earth, every square inch of the earth with beetles, if none of them die. I wonder if an elephant could walk through the garden without stepping on a few bugs. No. I'm having a hard time envisioning a created world where there was no death. Now, I can understand that Adam and Eve, somehow when they sinned, bowed, and now they lost authority over death, but death was already in existence. We know that for several reasons. For example, when God speaks to Job at the end of the book of Job, he says, I am the one who, killed, who created the hawk to hunt and kill her prey. I am the one that created Leviathan with teeth to terrify. I am the one who tr- created the ostrich to treat her young cruelly. You know, those three things. God says, I am the one who created things this way. And here where I read in Isaiah 45, I created light and darkness. I created well-being and calamity. Okay, what kind of adjustment do I have to make? If this morning I'm going to try, think biblically, instead of as every other Western Christian, uh, I'm going to try to get away from Augustinian God radiant attributes, and I'm going to say, no, God's a creator, not a radiator. God can do whatever he wants. He can create. Okay. First of all, I see in the start, I can see God created this. But I have to now, re- next step would be to redefine love. Because if God is love, and he radiates out love, the top of the pipe goes in love, the bottom of the pipe comes out love, well, if I'm envisioning the Garden of Eden is just so wonderful, Adam and Eve are just sitting around, stroking each other with flowers, okay, if that's my vision of how love would look, okay, well, that's a view of love, like I like to refer to it as warm and fuzzy, Is that the kind of love God has? Because now I've got to define God's love. Because there's a huge issue in America now. God is love. And I'm grateful that we're trying to understand his love. But I want to propose to you there's more to it than just saying God's love. Because is it warm and fuzzy love? Or what is God in his nature? I want to propose to you that he is a loving father who wants children who are holy and blameless before him. That God is not just love, period. There's more to who he is. That God created a world, and what was his reason for creating the world? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 says, God predetermined before the foundation world to have sons who are holy and blameless before him. God has a plan to create sons who are holy and blameless. In order to produce sons, he put us in a world in which we will have to mature. We will have to grow up. The earth is not a pillow where you're supposed to spend your life resting. The world is perfectly designed for the outcome God wants to produce. He wants to produce mature sons and daughters who eventually will rule and reign with Jesus. And to those who overcome will be given more authority to eventually rule and reign with him forever. So instead of just saying, God is love. Well, tell me more about that love. What is the love? Is it a pipe pumping out and at the other end of the love is warm and fuzzy? 
or is there more to it? And I come to say, no, there's a lot to God's nature revealed in this book. He's a father who wants sons, and yes, he loves, but he has a purpose also. If I put it in these terms, if you have a factory, the identity of the factory can tell you what it produces. Like a bicycle factory, you identify it as a bicycle factory, it should produce bicycles. An automobile factory, you identify that's an automobile factory, it should produce automobiles. A bakery, you identify that as a bakery, should produce baked goods. Okay? If I identified God as warm and fuzzy love, should produce warm and fuzzy things. But if I identify God as a loving father who wants sons and daughters, he ought to, at the end of the factory, produce a world in which he can create sons and daughters who are mature and grow up. So I try to understand, God, who are you? What is coming out of you? How did you create this world? Because there's a lot of issues that are being stirred up. And remember how I said, you change one little issue here and the implications come out here and there's a lot of things you have to rethink. Well, there are some parts of Christianity that are so altering concept of God and just cutting off. God is warm and fuzzy love, that's it. And not realizing it, no, God is a father who loves, and yes, he's love, but you gotta define love for me before I'm gonna accept that. You, you gotta read the rest of the Bible, too. God, what is it you're doing? You're creating sons. I read in Acts 17, it says, God created from one man every human being on earth in order that they may find him and if perhaps grope for him, find him. God put us in a world where you need God. God put us in a world where there are such challenges that you have to accept the challenges and at times you will even be put in a place where you're groping for God. If that's what it takes for you to find God, you might sometime encounter time in your life when your only answer is, I gotta find God. Why? Because God's not just love, 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 warm and fuzzy. God is a father trying to put people who will find him. And then, not only find him, there are difficulties in this world. Yes, pain and suffering has increased because of Adam and Eve's fall. But was there pain before the fall? Okay, think of God said to Eve after she all, now I will multiply your pain in giving childbirth. Okay, notice there already was pain in giving childbirth, but I'm going to multiply it. Out of God, the initial creation of the paradise, Eve already had some pain. Pain is not a bad thing. In fact, Adam could experience pain. If he couldn't, he'd walk through the garden and get a tree poked into his eye. And that pain that tells him his eye hurts means pull away from the tree branch. God created you with the ability to feel pain. But there is a move in American Christianity which is not in the world out there or in my brothers and sisters who are in suffering parts of the world. They are not having the same problem America is. They don't even entertain this thought that God is warm and fuzzy. No, they have accepted a world in which, no, we will mature through what God puts us through. Now, there's a pendulum swing where we could go and say, oh, now I'm just a victim. I'm pulling all the bad things on me. They're all from God. No, we're not saying that. We're just saying there is a God who created the perfect world in which sons and daughters, and even Jesus learned through his suffering. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 how trials will produce in you character and perseverance. There's a form of Christianity uh, that is modeling the American dream. And people equate the ideal life in America with the will of God. Either they're living the ideal life or they're envisioning their ideal is someday I want a nice home with a picket fence. I want my marriage to be great, the kids to be great. That's the ideal, and therefore, that must be God's will. Subconsciously, they're thinking, anything that stops me from that goal must not be God's will. And it's an American tendency to start equating the ideal life 
with God's will. When in reality, what's God's end will? It's not that home. It is mature sons and daughters. What is the end goal? Mature sons and daughters. Therefore, I come a trial or something comes into my life. I'm not going to accept it. I'm going to resist it. I'm going to ask God, help me. Help me overcome this thing and get over it. But also, God, while I'm in it, I want to grow. It's almost a Christianity that will not allow trials or difficulties and will not embrace them as character builders because we have seen God again from Plotinus's view radiating out when that's not who God is again God's not a radiator he's a creator he can create anything he wants anything he wants now I have to rethink scripture because when I'm under the thoughts of God being a radiator and warm and fuzzy love, man, I had a hard time. You know, like, God, you multiplied the pain. It doesn't say that was the consequence of sin. God said, I will greatly multiply your pain. I will do it. Now, if God's warm and fuzzy pipe love, then he couldn't do that. But if God is God who can do whatever he wants, he can do it. When it says... You know, the land becomes cursed. You know, in, in, in Genesis chapter 5, there's where it says, uh, verse 29, he called his name Noah. This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The Lord has cursed the ground? Okay, now if God is a pipe, he couldn't curse the ground because he has no curses. If he's a radiator... He can't do that. If he's a creator, he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. I, I, I start trying to say, i got to interpret many scriptures through the lens of the right accurate view of God. I come here to Genesis chapter 12. You know, it says, But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with a great plague because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Okay, now either i got to explain that away that it's not really true, or i got to change my concept of God. Who is, who is God? I think there's, sometimes you and I go through trials, and we have so pushed them out of our thinking, saying none of them are God's will. And I'm not saying all trials are God's will. No, the vast majority of your trials, God wants to deliver you today. He wants you to be free. He wants to heal you. He wants to help you with your financial difficulties. God is on your side. But you have to think of him as a father instead of warm and fuzzy love. What would a father do? And when you try to understand, you cannot go to a formula. A formula says God is warm and fuzzy. He can only do warm and fuzzy things. Instead of, God, you're my father. You love me. Why is this happening? God wants connection. And if I define him as a factory that only produces warm and fuzzy, it's almost as I'm distancing him and then demanding him to live a certain way and act a certain way, where if I say, God, no, you can do anything you want. You are great. You are a God, and I know you love me. And because you love me, I know you're going to show me how to get out of this. And Father, whatever you're doing, I want to come out as a mature son before you. There is still a place in Christianity for difficulties to come through life. You are not out of God's will just because you go through a difficulty. And you see, the churches that we go to overseas have no problem with this. Like in Pakistan, they got persecution and they're being financial devastation. They don't know we're going to eat every day. It's part of their Christianity to say, no, we will mature in this. Come on, brothers and sisters, let's mature. And I have honestly seen that Christians who are persecuted seem to be the happiest people on earth. Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted. There is some quality of happiness that are in Christians who have suffered persecution that Americans cannot comprehend. 
There is something produced in their character. And I just want to come back and say, God didn't put you on a pillow to live your days. He puts you in a world to make you into something. And that's who he is, and that's the world in which you live. And if you embrace this world, you're not going to receive the trials. You're not going to get under the trials. You're going to realize, though, God, you're going to help me out of these trials. I know you're a good God, and I'm talking to you as a father, and you relate to me as my father. Can we talk about this, God? And I just encourage, deal with God as a father rather than a formula, that God can't do that. God can do whatever he wants to do because he's a creator, not a radiator. Everybody say amen. amen. We all stand up. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's message. We pray that you experience God's presence and encouragement, grow in a healthy community, and influence your world. For more information, contact newhopecom.org.